This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. The confirmation hearing for Katanji Brown Jackson began this week. So you're not going to answer my question. No, I've answered your question in my answer. You haven't I've answered explained. my question. I'm sitting here asking you, and you're declining to answer. Good. Cut. Good. I understand. Absolutely Senator, good. I hope you are. To do good. Allow her to finish, please. Okay. In that chart. Okay, Judge, you said that before. The, these are the eight or nine child porn cases. I will say to correct the record. I, I was just say about. to the judge, there's no point in responding. He's going to interrupt you. I, Thank you. Look, Republican senators accused her of handing out light sentences to child porn predators while also questioning her about critical race theory because she sits on the board of a private school. Where does her nomination stand? What did we learn about Jackson as a jurist? What did we learn about Republican senators during the questioning? That's where we will begin this episode of America Change Forever. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate, and she is always willing to join us here on ACF. Dahlia, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me back. All right. So taking a look back at this first week of these Supreme Court hearings to confirm Ketanji Brown Jackson, how do you think she did? You know, I thought she was very refreshing in one really, I think, useful way, which is she's just not a political animal. And we've had a lot of hearings for people who were political actors on either side of the spectrum, you know, who worked for the government, who worked to push certain causes. Judge Jackson is a judge. She's been a judge for almost 10 years, and she talks like a judge. And so it's very, to me, refreshing to hear somebody who wants to explain to you how she does a sentencing in a criminal drug case or how she thinks about talking to the defendants in uh, a child pornography case. Every time one of the senators pressed her on her quote-unquote judicial philosophy, she would push back and say, "I I don't have a philosophy. I have a methodology. And I loved it because I felt like it was her way of saying, I'm a judge. I have a way that I approach judging. It's not this transcendent academic exercise. It's the thing I do every day when I go to work. It's really interesting how she is able to take you into the mind of a jurist and how, as you note, how how they formulate their decisions, you know, Typically, that kind of thing, I'd probably tune out. But uh, it's just fascinating how she is responding to these questions, some of which dealing with issues that she will never deal with on the Supreme Court if she's confirmed. Right. I mean, I think probably 
Ted Cruz questioning her about critical race theory for toddlers, uh, as though that's something that's going to either come across the docket once she's confirmed or something that she's dealt with as a jurist for uh, almost a decade. Uh, And her answer to those things is the entirely appropriate thing, which is, I have no idea. It doesn't affect what I'm doing. I do think there are moments where, you know, she's being pressed on when a fetus can feel pain. She's being pressed on questions of LGBTQ rights. And she does have a tendency to answer those questions. She's not quite as reserved as some of her predecessors in terms of refusing to answer questions that might come before her. And those very, very politically inflected questions, sometimes she has a little bit of a rough time extracting herself. Uh, For instance, when they press her on court packing, I think the correct answer is it has nothing to do with me as a judge. This is a congressional prerogative. Um, Sometimes she answers, and I'm not sure it helps her when she does. Well, I'm... I am surprised that she would answer some of those questions. You think that in the prep work that goes into these kinds of confirmation hearings, she would have been advised to stay out of that kind of thing. I think it comes from two places. One is, I think, uh, as we said when we started, uh, she's just not a a really well-honed political actor, and she doesn't always have the political instincts to to dodge and, and weave when she's asked a political question. I think the other thing really is she's just trying to be helpful. I think it's her nature, and you can see it. No matter what the question is, she answers with a very polite thank you. Thank you for letting me talk about that. And I do think her, by temperament, her impulse is to give more information instead of less. Yeah, sounds like a good idea, but could that backfire? I haven't seen any places where I think it's really hurt her. I think she had a colloquy with uh, Marsha Blackburn from Tennessee late on Tuesday night where Uh, Senator Blackburn was really trying to drag her down the path of, shouldn't we all just agree that Roe v. Wade should be overruled? And what would you do when Roe v. Wade is overruled? And can you define, you know, uh, what a woman is? And some of those moments, I think you're right. I think uh, the correct answer would have just been, I can't speak to that. But I think by and large, she has been very deft Uh, When presented with a very, very thorny political question, redirecting it and deflecting it and recasting it as either a question of judicial craft, as you said, this is what happens in the mind of a jurist, or uh, more or less saying... You know, that's got absolutely nothing to do with me. And so I think she's she's definitely picked her way through this as ably as I think I've seen. Well, she's had to... Jump a few hurdles. I mean, what the the kinds of questions that she's getting? You know, depending on who you are looking at this uh, hearing, um, you know, you wonder if if she wasn't a black woman, would she be facing some of these questions? If she wasn't a person of color, would she be facing questions about critical race theory, which you know have nothing to do with a Supreme Court justice? Um, and some of the other questions that she's getting, you know, they're, they're, depending on who you ask, they're offensive. No question. And I would go so far as to say 
some of them are overtly, I'm thinking of an exchange she had with Lindsey Graham where he, in both days, both on Tuesday and Wednesday, wouldn't let her finish a sentence, was, um, you know, screaming at her and accusing her of filibustering while not allowing her to answer. There was a real, I think, uptick between her and Ted Cruz, her and Josh Hawley, uh, in very, very aggressive, I would say, borderline bullying questions. And you're quite right, a lot of those center on issues around race and gender. I think one of the things that is most interesting to me is that in the weeks going into the hearings, we heard from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. We heard from Chuck Grassley, the ranking member on the Judiciary Committee. This is going to be civil. We are not going after her. We don't want this to be an ugly smear campaign. And then on the Friday right before the hearings, I guess on the Thursday night, Senator Hawley released a tweet storm where he started to allege that he was very concerned about Judge Jackson, that she was too light in handing out sentences to child pornographers, and that all of our children are at risk. And it was interesting because it was met with almost blanket condemnation across the ideological spectrum. Um, You know, the National Review Online, Fox News, multiple places, including Republican former judges, all came out and said, that's a smear. That's not an acceptable um, attack. It cherry picks from what she's done, and it really disserves what it is that uh, the sentencing guidelines require. I thought that would quell this line of attack, and I was very struck that on Monday morning, even in the face of all of it roundly being debunked by fact checkers, that Senator Hawley and then Senator Blackburn doubled down, really went for it, you know, and went for this theme of Democrats are soft on child pornographers with the valence of QAnon and, you know, Comet Pizza and all that comes with it. And then I think the additional to my dismay, having again seen it debunked and seen only Senator Hawley and Blackburn do that on Monday. By Wednesday, we were hearing it from John Cornyn in Texas. We were hearing it from Mike Lee in Utah. In other words, it had gone mainstream. And to me, there's some kind of lesson here in how these hearings are an information war more than they are are really a quest for truth. And some of the smears that you're talking about, whether it's critical race theory or, you know, transgendered swimmers that have, again, as you said, nothing to do with any issue that will materialize before her on the court, not just ways of doing campaign ads for the midterm elections, but I think a way of putting ideas into the bloodstream of the American discourse that even though they've been debunked, even though you've been scolded for saying them, they're there now. Now it is out in the discourse that somehow Katanji Brown Jackson has a deep affection for child pornographers. But is have these previous hearings uh, for Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch were was the tone similar? Not exactly the same, of course, but similar in this messaging war that. Uh, uh, you know, did the did the 
did the Democrats at the time uh, use talking points to to score points during those hearings? And is is this what these hearings have become? No doubt. And you can carbon date, date it to Clarence Thomas. You can carbon date it to Robert Bork. I think that everybody is fond of remembering that Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia got confirmed by almost unanimous margins. Uh, and it's not because they weren't ideological and they weren't uh, polarizing in their own way. It's just that there was a longstanding tradition that elections have consequences, presidents can pick their nominee, and barring disqualifying misconduct or uh, behavior, uh, you vote for them. And I think that was the tradition. And I think there's a lot of fighting. And in fact, you're seeing it playing out in these hearings where you're hearing, well, this is the Democrats' fault for what they did to Brett Kavanaugh or for what they did to Amy Coney Barrett. Um, and, you know, Democrats are, are apt to say this is Mitch McConnell's fault for not giving uh, Merrick Garland a hearing or a vote for nearly a year after Justice Scalia died. So th- I, I think you're quite right. This is just an ugly spectacle on both sides. I think what is interesting here is that there's a lot of that stuff being relitigated instead of looking at the almost 600 opinions that Katanji Brown Jackson has. In other words, she said in her opening remarks, I've got tons and tons and tons of written opinions, you know, nine years of them to look at. There's very little interest in looking at her actual record and instead a lot of speechifying about what happened to Merrick Garland or what happened to Miguel Estrada or other nominees. And I think it's unfortunate because it creates this culture where you you're almost so busy with your list of resentments that you take no interest in the nominee before you. You know, thus far, it looks like she is cruising through to a confirmation. What do you think? Well, I think this is where we have to stop and remember that almost all of this is being done, believe it or not, to try to pick off three Republican votes. And that uh, Judge Jackson was confirmed less than a year ago to be on the D.C. Circuit Appeals Court, where she now serves, uh, with three Republican votes. And in a funny way, a lot of the squawking that you're hearing, particularly, I think, from Senator Graham, who is looking at the same record he looked at a year ago, uh, is to justify switching his vote about a nominee that he was fine with last June. And so I think you're quite right. uh, To the extent that She is going to have uh, all the Democrats and Kamala Harris, the vice president, with a tie-breaking vote if it comes down to that. I don't think anything is going to stymie this. I do think that Biden had very, very – I'm sorry. I do think that President Biden had very fond hopes that he could – pick off a few Republican votes that he could say, I got her confirmed on a bipartisan basis. I think it's actually one of the reasons he picked her is that she just had uh, been confirmed on a bipartisan basis. But I think, and this goes to your larger point, just about the ugliness of this process, I will be surprised if she gets more than perhaps one Republican vote. Interesting. We'll keep watching it. Something, Something else in the... Uh, atmosphere around the Supreme Court 
Justice Clarence Thomas, hospitalized with an infection. Of course, the the high court is you know isn't releasing a lot of information on on uh, you know the nature of this infection. What what are you hearing about Clarence Thomas? How how serious is this? Well, you've just tapped into one of my lifelong complaints about the court and its release of medical information. Uh, The court is very parsimonious about telling us medical details, and it has been an ongoing fight between the Supreme Court press corps and the court. Uh, You may recall that uh, when Chief Justice, then Chief Justice William Rehnquist, had uh, missed many, many, many arguments, was clearly very ill. The court was not at all forthcoming with his diagnosis, his prognosis, with what was going on. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was pretty scrupulous about giving out her information as she battled cancer toward the end of her life. But even she, I think, withheld a lot of information. And it seems to be the prerogative of the court that the individual justices can let us know when they want to tell us and what they want to tell us. And it's a problem because, as you say, this is a co-equal branch of government. (laughs) People have a right to know. That's a long-winded way of saying uh, Justice Thomas went into the hospital before the weekend. Uh, We were not notified of it until Sunday night when we got a very, very perfunctory note that it's not COVID. He's in the hospital. He's being treated with antibiotics. He should be out in a day or two and that he would be participating in the arguments Monday through Wednesday telephonically. Uh, Since then... uh, A lot of folks have reached out to try to find out, is he still in the hospital? Um, He did not participate in um, arguments on Monday. What's going on? The court has given no further information. And so the truth is, one of the things that I think is casting something of a shadow over the Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings is that we actually have almost no information beyond that first release that he was sick, uh, that he seemed to be improving and would be out in a day or two. A day or two has passed, still no word. And I think that it has cranked up the temperature in that hearing room because the mere thought that there might be uh, something more serious going on, I think just up the stakes for everybody. Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you for your time. I don't know, there's, you know, I'm wrapping things up here, but I just wanted to say before I say uh, until next time that I just really enjoy uh, having these discussions with you. Thank you for your time. I just want to say that on a very, very long week of 18 and 19 hour reporting days, it is very, very nice to hear kind words from you. And so thank you so much. Really, thank you. This week, I asked a top FBI official to give me a read on the level of concern at FBI headquarters about a potential Russian cyber attack on U.S. targets. The response? There is significant concern. Nicole Skanga is my colleague at CBS News. She covers the Department of Homeland Security and top cyber officials. She is a CBS News reporter. Nicole, thanks for being with us. It seemed to me like the posture changed this week. What did U.S. officials see that appeared to be different? Well, it all started on Monday, Jeff, when President Biden warned of this evolving intelligence that suggested Russia 
is starting to explore options for potential cyber attacks targeting U.S. critical infrastructure. Now, we should make it clear to your audience, there's no evidence of a specific cyber attack that's already occurred. Um, Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger, though, told reporters from behind the White House podium on Monday afternoon that U.S. officials have observed preparatory work linked to nation state actors. So things like scanning, searching for vulnerabilities, frankly, things that happen every day in the cyber world. But, you know, some of this was concerning in regard to critical infrastructure. And so we started poking around. We found that last week the FBI had warned the U.S. energy sector about network scanning activity that was stemming from multiple Russia-based IP addresses. The activity was believed to be associated with cyber actors who had previously conducted some pretty destructive cyber activity against foreign critical infrastructure, although there were no further details in that bulletin. And then sort of as a third prong here, we also know there is this evolving threat that has been presented to satellite telecommunications or what the intelligence world will often call SATCOM, uh, which is a sector that U.S. officials are deeply concerned about. Um, On Tuesday, there was this big call with CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the FBI, and about 13,000 industry stakeholders across the United States. And on that call, you know, CISA outright said, we are seeing threats to U.S. and NATO allies' satellite communication networks, which can create risk in customers' environments. And we can get into this a little bit later if you like, but at the start of the Russian invasion in Ukraine, we did in fact observe some what Ukraine says are Russian malicious actors. The U.S. has not attributed it yet, but an attack on a telecommunications uh, service provider uh, overseas uh, that in fact serviced some European countries. Uh, and so the plot thickens, but that's sort of where we start, Jeff. All right, so let's let's talk about that call with CISA, the FBI, and 13,000 stakeholders, representatives of critical infrastructure across the country. What really stood out to you about that call? Did everybody seem to be on the same page? You know, I, I think what stood out to me most about that call, Jeff, was the fact that it was publicly released. You know, it is not uncommon for the FBI and CISA to brief industry stakeholders. In fact, you know, the Department of Homeland Security, which sits on top of CISA, tells us that they've had over 90 briefings, tabletop exercises, you know, engagements with the private sector, you know, in recent history. Certainly they've had dozens of these types of briefings since the Russian, you you know, invasion of Ukraine. Uh, but none of them have necessarily been made public. You can literally watch this call, um, you know, on YouTube. And so I think that's one thing that stood out to me, you know, about this. Um, In addition to what officials said about satellite communications networks, um, you know, they also revealed some other details we didn't know. Um, That the White House's discussion of preparatory activity is not about espionage. That's according to the CISA director, Jen Easterly, that it's probably very likely linked to disruptive or destructive activity. And 
I think this call, even just in sort of the anxiety you could hear, uh, perhaps not anxiety, urgency you could hear from government officials really marked a, a bit of a tone shift. And it was also designed, you know, among, uh, you know, to kind of rally the nation's industry leaders, despite the fact that for a month now they've been told shields up, shields up, shields up. And now we're hearing from so many of these industry stakeholders that there is vigilance fatigue just among the workforce. So I think that was sort of the other goal here. Um, but, you know, again, maybe the biggest takeaway from this call um, is that it was just a huge departure from standard operating procedure to put it out there beyond the technical information that was provided. This was a, a three hour marathon of Q&A with industry leaders from small businesses, um, you know, and, and some of the highest ranking government officials kind of wild just to witness them last for this long. And it did reveal significant levels of confusion, I will say, about the current threat emanating from Russia, some of the redundant reporting requirements to the federal government. So if there's suspicious activity, where do I even go to report that information? Um, and also some of the uneven resources among some of the critical infrastructure stakeholders, how, how some are just way more, you know, better positioned than others to respond to the current threat. And when I cover uh, cyber-related stories, I'm often told that, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. And so if there are gaps in the system, that's a problem. And I'm sure U.S. officials are aware of that. And I, you know, it is hard to believe that, that call was, was three hours long. So it kept going and going and going. That's exactly it. And, you know... I will point out that CISA Director Jen Easterly stayed for the entire call, right? And you had people asking similar questions. You had people mispronouncing CISA, calling it CISA, that sort of thing. So jokingly, after the call, uh, the director tweeted a pronunciation key. Uh, but it really does show you the learning curve here when it comes to getting real about cybersecurity. The government seems to be taking that in stride now, uh, but we have a lot of catching up to do. I will say, Jeff, just because not everyone might have the opportunity to carve out three hours in their day um, to listen to the call. Uh, we did hear some actual practical tips on that call, things like patching public facing vulnerabilities. And for the average everyday American who's like, what does that mean? That means, you know, updating your devices, make sure, making sure they have the latest software updates, not just snoozing that until tomorrow. Um, you know, multi-factor authentication is something we've also talked about. So as annoying as it might be, setting it up so that, you know, when you log into Twitter, uh, you get a code on your phone and then you put that code into your computer. Um, and also being very wary of any out of the ordinary activity and particularly phishing emails, Jeff, or spear phishing we often hear about. Um, you know, I, I will own up to it right now. I got a phishing email the other day on my work email. It said that someone had logged into my Twitter account and had changed my password in Moscow. And would I like to click this link to reset my password? And I was very tempted to click in, but I said, no, I, I think that this could be a trick. I forwarded it to our IT and, and turns out it was a phishing email. And so everyone, you know, from the nation's critical infrastructure leaders all the way down to your average everyday American does need to be on heightened alert because all it takes is one wrong double click uh, and you could compromise your entire network. Yeah, that's often how these hackers get into systems. All it takes is somebody to click on one of those email links. Nicole Skanga, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeff. 
Realistically, what are the chances that Russia carries out some sort of cyber attack which triggers a wider conflict than the war in Ukraine? A cyber attack that draws the United States into a conflict in a much bigger way. Dr. Kevin Generous, Associate Professor at the National Defense University, the Joint Forces Staff College, and the Joint and Combined Warfare School. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So what what do you think about the current threat environment as it relates to the potential for cyber attacks from Russia? It seems like this past week, the Biden administration really uh, doubled down on its message to businesses, critical infrastructure to, and this is a term that... uh, the Department of Homeland Security has been throwing around, get your shields up. In other words, be prepared, protect your system. So what do you think of the current threat environment? That's very good advice for business. And I think a lot of entities in this country, business entities, uh, other institutions, universities, things like that, I think they've had their shields up in a lot of ways uh, for a while because this is not a new type of attack. Actually, this, the cyber wars have been going on for some time. I think this might be a time when things uh, get stepped up. But I think the, the activities have been going on for some time. The Russians are very good at it. They are. And, you know, this is something that I've really been focusing on since 2016 when we found out and, and we here at CBS News reported that Russian hackers had sent out thousands, tens of thousands of malicious emails to government entities, to uh, think tanks. And this is during the 2016 election and leading up to that election. And the concern from U.S. officials at that time was that, you know, these hackers had somehow, you know, worst case scenario, embedded themselves in critical infrastructure. Um, and so when you, when you talk about how good these Russian hackers are, uh, there is evidence that they, they have been in some systems here in the U.S. for years now. Absolutely. Uh, malicious software, malware, and things like this. And, you know, we, we are familiar with these kinds of things. We've used these kinds of weapons as well. Let me put this in, in a little bit in context. What the, what the Russians are doing uh, is engaging in something called uh, nonlinear or hybrid warfare which is not just cyber. It's a whole range of types of activities that happen kind of in the, this is called gray zone warfare. It happens in this space between peace and war. And the Russians have been developing this for a long time and the the Chinese as well. Now, why are they doing this? Well, they're doing this because uh, as the United States has demonstrated over the last 20, 30 years, any foreign power would be crazy to take the United States on in a straight-up military contest. So they're not going to do that. They're trying to uh, chip away at American strength a little bit at a time. And this is what hybrid warfare is all about. And this is not just cyber, as I said, but it is a coordination of diplomatic, economic, political actions, of which cyber is just kind of a, a one instrument in the, in the toolbox. So cyber network attacks, of course, are designed to disrupt, degrade, and, and steal things. It's also designed to uh, create uh, shape perceptions in this country of the future of the conflict and the ability to resist our adversaries' foreign policy actions. This is called psychological warfare, and this is used by propaganda through propaganda tools, information warfare. You may have heard that term, information operations. 
which is fake news and trolls and bots and things like that. Uh, but there's also efforts to try to m- manipulate media and social media through using these kinds of tools. So this is part of a very broad range of types of actions that are can be classified as a uh, hybrid warfare. Well, based on what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine, the Russian military, a lot of people are now saying, aren't you know what they were billed to be. Are we also overestimating Russian hacking capabilities and cyber attack capabilities? What do you think? Possibility. Um, you know, when, when the, the concept of cyber warfare kind of became popularized, it was this idea that somehow there would be this Pearl Harbor, right? This, this sneak attack that would take everything down and we would just throw our hands up and say, okay, you guys win. It doesn't really work that way. And it's not really part of what the Russians and Chinese are trying to do with this. They are trying to, uh, over time, diminish our capability to resist. And this is trying to focus on, again, psychological warfare. Uh, so, So this will happen in bits and pieces, and the attacks can be very selective. Our response to this has to also, I believe, be very selective. We have spent a lot a lot of energy and time on defensive cyber operations, you know, how to defend against these kinds of attacks. But what I think we'll be talking a little bit more, and the Ukraine conflict will probably bring this uh, up sooner, is what kinds of responses do we have to deter these kinds of attacks? Because what is deterrence, right? You're trying to prevent your enemy from doing something under the threat of punishment or retaliation. And we haven't been doing much of that, or at least we haven't been doing much of that publicly. In my view, deterrence theory is really lacking because we haven't had, we don't really have a national declaratory policy where we attempt to try to shape the environment. We need to shape the environment too. And by doing that, we need to establish a sense of rules and norms in which these cyber events or attacks take place and which ones are going to elicit a response from us uh, that could cause them some trouble as well. You bring up a topic or a discussion that uh, many in government have been talking about having, uh, at least since 2016, uh, when it was determined that, uh, you know, these government agencies, political parties were the targets of Russian hackers. You know, and, and when you talk to people in the intelligence field, you know, they also talk about the fact that, well, you know, as you brought up, you know, what line needs to be crossed or could be crossed to trigger, you know, the kind of war that goes from online to armed conflict? And that's what you're talking about here, right, is the possible, that's the escalation, right? It, what happens if things go too far? And it triggers uh, an armed conflict. Well, that's always a possibility. But again, we have to establish a a set of rules and norms that both sides agree to, if not uh, in legal form, but tacitly agree. And we did this during the Cold War. Um, The United States and Soviet Union, you know, had tremendous amount of nuclear weapons and we could have obliterated each other and came close a few times. But over a period of 40 years, we established kind of rules of the road or rules of engagement where both sides knew where they could not cross a line. 
And we have to establish those lines, because if we don't establish those lines, then the possibility of escalation becomes a lot more real. How do you think the Biden administration has handled this uh, cyber threat, uh, especially the cyber threat connected to uh, Russian actions in Ukraine? Do you think that they've done enough? Uh, do you think they've been proactive enough? Um, well, uh, remember about, I don't know, maybe about eight or nine months ago, uh, President Biden said, well, here are 16 areas that um, you better not mess with uh, in terms of cyber activities, or you will get some kind of bad response from us, right? A nasty response. And, and there was a very generalized list. And this is what was discussed in public. I don't know what was said in private. Th- that list is very general. Uh, and it was ridiculed. A lot of people said, well, that means you can anything not on that list, you can attack. But it really has to be a little more specific than that. Uh, and I think we're moving in that direction. But again, uh, um, it's, it's a slow movement because uh, what is required is really a whole of government approach. Right. You have to have coordinated defense and offensive activities across government in order to do this. And you have to sit down or at least develop an understanding with the other side, the, the adversaries you're concerned about, to start laying out what these, what these boundaries are. What are the left and right boundaries on acceptable things? Is it attacking hospitals, uh, you know, systems where large numbers of people could die? Critical infrastructure, perhaps. Yes, and the, the, the list that President Biden provided was, in fact, critical infrastructure. But, but again, uh, again, not knowing what the details are, there has to be some guidelines. And in fact, there are at uh, meetings over the last several years at the United, through the United Nations, by the way, Russia, China and the United States and some other countries have actually talked about what some boundaries might be for cyber attacks. It, it doesn't mean that Russia and China have been following those rules, but it is the beginning of an effort to try to develop some international norms on using this. And one, I'll throw one out there that I think is a good one. A lot of what uh, uh, Russia and China have done is say, well, you know, this isn't really us. This is not the Russian government doing this. These, these are just people out there doing their own thing. Well, we, can, we were developing a pretty good capability to trace back the origins of these kinds of attacks. And one of the rules has to be, well, if this attack originates inside your territory, guess what? We're going to hold you responsible. And uh, so this is an effort to try to get the governments to try to clean up any independent operations that may go on within their boundaries because they could be held accountable for it in the future. What's the what's the other idea? Other ideas? Well, there are certain categories of uh, responses that that should be off limits, uh, such as I think I used the example earlier of uh, trying to take down uh, infrastructure that might affect uh, public health and uh, hospitals, things that will affect populations. And this is the kind of actions I think the United States will, I think we're going to start having that debate. What are our rules of engagement, right? What are things that we will not do? But I think it's important, more important to establish that there are certain types of activities that we reserve the right to respond to. We're not going to tell you in advance what they are, but we are going to tell you where the red lines are. And that's how you establish deterrence. We have no real deterrence in terms of cyber warfare right now. Um, and we have to establish it because it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful tool. If all of the parties start really 
employing cyber in a, in a, in a very big way, you could escalate beyond the boundaries of uh, the gray zone between war and peace and get into the actual war uh, where you get into shooting wars. Again, it's, it's small steps and preventive measures at this level by establishing deterrence can get a handle and prevent escalation to uh, so-called kinetic warfare right, where both sides are actually engaged in military actions. Do you think this statement that the U.S. is more vulnerable than any other country on Earth to cyber attacks, do you think that statement is true? More vulnerable? Um, Well, we're certainly a a plugged-in, connected society, right? But I think most modern societies are also very, very plugged in. I mean, the Baltic states, for example, have been under tremendous cyber, uh, offensive cyber attacks for some time, probably emanating from Russia. The Ukraine suffered this kind of problem also. Their whole electric grid went down a few years ago. Uh, so you know, these are instruments that nation states like Russia that want to um, achieve certain political ends will use. They will use them as a, as a tool of warfare. And uh, the United States has been I don't want to say we've been immune uh, from any major types of attacks because I, I, uh, we have had attacks. Government systems are under attack every day, every hour of the day. But there hasn't been that escalatory step where they will do something that could result in, say, mass casualties or mass economic impacts. Um, and we are vulnerable to that. I think I'll leave you with this quote from Graham Allison. Uh, very, very much uh, the expert on the Cuban Missile Crisis, writing on the lessons that we learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis. He says, quote, one lesson of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that if you are not prepared to risk war, even nuclear war, an adroit adversary can get you to back down in successive confrontations. If you do have red lines that would lead to war, if crossed, then you have to communicate them credibly to your adversary and back them up or risk having your threats diminished. I think it's important that we be very clear uh, where we stand on this, and uh, we can't be too risk adverse uh, in the face of dangerous, aggressive behavior like we see going on in in Ukraine and in the cyber portion of this. It'll make the situation worse, uh, and it'll be much harder to establish those uh, acceptable rules and norms that we need to, uh, to build deterrence. Dr. Kevin Generous, thank you. Okay, Jeff, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Madeline Albright died this past week. She was a trailblazer in so many different ways. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. When Madeleine Albright made history as the first female Secretary of State in 1997, she also became the highest-ranking woman ever in American government. Albright rose from U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, where she famously backed NATO bombing to halt war crimes against Bosnian Muslims. And she had a reputation for tough talk, like this, after Cuba shot down two U.S. civilian planes flown by exiles. This is not cojones. This is cowardice. Albright was born in Czechoslovakia in 1937. Her family was forced to flee the Nazis, coming to America as refugees in 1948. As Secretary of State, Albright clashed with Saddam Hussein in Iraq and became the highest-ranking U.S. official to meet North Korea's Kim Jong-il. Albright mixed it up well with men, but looked out for women. The most famous thing I ever said was that there's a special place in hell 
for women who don't help each other. Albright became known the world over for her brooches, which she called pins, worn to convey her mood. When people would say, what are you doing today? I'd say, read my pins. One of Albright's last public appearances was delivering a eulogy at Colin Powell's funeral. I am often asked, am I an optimist or a pessimist? I reply that I'm an optimist who worries a lot. Madeleine Albright was 84. We looked back in our archives and found this report from CBS News 60 Minutes correspondent Ed Bradley. Madeleine Albright has been on the job for a few weeks now, and Washington is already used to the idea of addressing the country's top diplomat as Madam Secretary. But when we dropped in on the new Secretary of State last week, we found she's still getting used to the idea. Do you ever pinch yourself? Every morning. <laughs> just, you know how sometimes you wake up and you think, well, I just had a nice dream. Do you think it's really true? Uh -huh. You know, and so uh, it's a little bit like that. Uh -huh. Somebody said to me early on, do you realize that you have Thomas Jefferson's job? And <laughs> that kind of uh, little uh, awe there. Uh, John so, Marshall? Yes. All this oh. entire hall is filled with former secretaries of state, mm -hmm. and it gives you a great sense of history and uh, to think that I'm now at the end of this line. Also, we have this clip of Madeleine Albright and her important piece of advice to other women. Women often wait too long in meetings to make their views known. And then all of a sudden some man says whatever it is that you were going to say and everybody thinks it's brilliant. So I basically taught people never to raise their hands interrupt. That's what women need to do. That is this week's America Change Forever. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. You can download and review this podcast and check your local listing to see when the show airs on your favorite radio station. And you can listen every Saturday on Sirius XM POTUS channel 124. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is How America Changed Forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.